Take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. As you're turning there, just, uh, just as a reminder, we uh, jumped into chapter 7 last week, a bit of a shift in focus, taking a look at these visions that God is giving Amos. Amos chapter 7, and we'll read verses 7 through 9. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. There's a phrase that we're familiar with. Its origins have some bit of debate, some suggesting it is an ancient Chinese proverb going back millennia. Others saying they they find its origins in certain 18th century pieces of literature. At the very least, we can say it definitely shows up in 1911. An editor by the name of Arthur Brisbane who was an editor of a newspaper, was arguing for a change in in the ways in which they presented the news in their newspaper. He he felt like it was important that they moved away from so much focus on content and instead started to argue for adding more and more images to the story in order to provide a better reading experience. And to argue for this change, here this became his tagline, use a picture, it's worth a thousand words. Of course, we're familiar with the phrase, right? We, we might say something like, a picture is worth a thousand words, or uh, uh, you can, you can, that, that a painting, you can paint with a thousand words. The, the, the idea is a simple one, that sometimes we really begin to grasp information when we can visualize it, right? So, so not only looking at words on a page, but trying to get it to connect in our minds, being such visually oriented kinds of people... That's a really helpful thing to do. I want to read it. I want to hear it. Boy, it really takes on new life when I can see it. I I think this is what is happening in the transition in the book of Amos. Amos, for the first six chapters, everything he has been saying up to this point has been prefaced by the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Up to this point, it has been full-out content. Not that there hasn't been some pretty significant imagery involved, but but it's all been really driven by by really almost this preaching component, right? That Amos has been called to deliver the message that God has given to him. God gives him the message. Amos goes to Bethel. He preaches the message. God then gives him another message. He goes to Bethel. He preaches the next message. 
Now, this is still what he's doing, but the method has changed. We see it right at the very beginning. We saw it last week. Chapter 7 opens with the words, rather than thus says the Lord, it opens with the phrase, thus the Lord God showed me. And this is then kind of the driving phrase for the rest of the book. Chapters 7 through 9 is going to detail for us five visions that God gives to Amos. And it definitely moves then from that just what God has said to visualizing it. It is a way of painting the picture of what God is about to do. And so it really provides a a powerful message here. Now, keep in mind as we go through these visions, though it's going to talk as if this is just a conversation between Amos and God, this is still Amos preaching to the people at Bethel. He is recounting the visions and the experiences he's had with God. But all all of this material, it's not a private conversation. This is something that's being communicated then in the prophetic office. So, So it still functions in a way that the first six chapters did, only now it comes with a bit more of a of a visual flair to it. And so as we've looked at chapter 7, 7 is going to outline for us or describes for us three of the five. Three of the five visions that, that, that again, the, the, the visions are focused on fundamentally one thing, like all of the visions have been, all of the book of Amos has been. It is focused on the issue of judgment. So again, in Amos chapter 7, uh, we have three visions of God's judgment Though, rather than just saying, thus says the Lord, it is going to be God showing elements of what this judgment is all about. Now, there is also an important distinction, because as we get into chapter 7, we see that some of the language uh, changes, or or at least there's elements here that we didn't have in the first six chapters. We we get some some nuance. We, We get a little bit more information filled in. We see a little bit more detail about all that God is revealing about himself in the judgment. So, you got notes there. Uh, Again, from last week, Amos chapter 7 records three visions. If we go on to the next slide, three visions from God about the coming judgment. These visions of judgment, they're going to offer instruction on how God works to deal with sin among his people. Now, we, we looked at the first one last week, and this was definitely a change. This was language we've not seen in Amos, really in any kind of form, and that is that God relents. One of the actions that God engages in, one of the things the vision reveals about God, is that God is a God who is willing to relent. So the first two visions, God God shows Amos a vision of a locust swarm, and and Amos then cries out to God, asking God to, to intervene, to not, to stop, don't do this. Then there's a second one where there is a, there's fire that destroys this burning heat. Again, he intercedes and says, God, cease, don't do this. And in both cases, God relents. Now, we worked our way through that, what it means for God to relent. Um, and, and so we won't revisit that. But I think a fundamental issue, and it's there on your notes, at least something like this, this, this is an important set of the message because the first six chapters have been hard. The, the language of judgment to come, the certainty of judgment to come has been a hard message. And what these first two visions do is it, it sets out clearly that the judgment that the people are going to experience is their fault. It's their fault. 
This is not God being capricious or, uh, or being out of control, flying off the handle. This is not God getting impatient. No, God is a God who's willing to forbear. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to extend grace. He just wants repentance. He wants confession. And so in some ways, the fact that God is willing to relent is an even greater indictment against the sins of the people, right? It's, it's an even greater indictment against their foolishness. They do not have to go through this judgment. The fact that they're going to, it's their fault. Because God is a God who's willing to relent. All right, so that was last week. Number two, second one we're going to look at tonight, and that is God evaluates. God evaluates. So now, now we see, a, once again, a, a different kind of a, of a vision. The, the, the language here is a bit different again, by, by nature. So go back to verse 7. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, some may ask the question, what, do you, what does he mean? He saw the Lord standing on a wall. Ready? Write this down. I have no idea. I, I think that's one of those statements that you, you, you just read and you think, this is a divine and profound mystery here. That there, there is an element here where Amos has done us a favor by even telling us the vision, in a sense, uh, and this is all that he could really say about it. But do not take this to mean, you know, that, that, that God looks like a human, all right? That's not what he's getting at, okay? But in, w- in whatever way the vision comes to him, it is God on a wall, plumb line in hand, a wall that has been built, as it says, with, made with a plumb line, and then one in his hand. So he asked Amos, what do you see? Well, Amos says, I see a plumb line, which is interesting, by the way, because there's a lot he could say, right? He sees the Lord on a wall. But when he's asked the question, what do you see? What is it that Amos replies with? Oh, I see a plumb line. So that to me is just a fascinating answer. I'm not going to make a big theological issue out of it. I just mean that's a fascinating answer, right? That of all the things that he's got to be seeing, this is the thing he focuses on. Now, because that is going to be the point of the text, but, but he sees then this plumb line. So he says, all right, a plumb line. So here's how God responds then to that. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. So, so the, the vision is, is symbolic, it's imagery, that, that what God is doing on a wall with a plumb line hanging down by it, is, is this is what he's doing in Israel. He made Israel, and now he's setting a plumb line in the middle of her, and then he uses this phrase, I will not pass by them anymore. This is quite the contrast with the first two visions. Because the first two visions we talked about, God's grace, mercy, he's willing to relent. But what is this vision now communicating? Time's up. Judgment is coming. Now, that phrase, does that phrase sound familiar? That language, maybe not that phrase exactly, but when he says, I will not pass by them anymore. 
Does that conjure up any image or connection with another story in the Bible? Because I think it's a direct connection. Passover, right? I mean, if you change that phrase to, I will not pass over them anymore. So think about the weight of that as a Jew hearing this. I mean, what, what was the Passover? Paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. The death angel comes into the camp, comes into the, into the land. When he passes through, he passes over every home that has the blood over the doorpost, right? And that, that meant that God's judgment would not be visited upon that particular home. And so what is he now telling them? I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of Israel, and I'm not going to pass over you anymore. I'm not passing by this time. You know, there are a few times in the Bible where it is terrifying to think that God is in our midst. We don't always think that way about God, do we? We don't always have this. We usually tend to think, well, God's presence is always an encouraging and edifying thing. Not every time in, Bible, in the Bible is God's presence an encouraging and edifying thing. In this case, it is terrifying that God is going to manifest His presence among them because it's language of judgment. And then he finishes this by saying, the high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. So that's a reference to their problem in worship. The ways, so one of the things that's going to be evaluated and measured by the plumb line is the ways in which they have failed to meet God's expectations in worship. And then... He says, and I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So then there's a specific judgment then coming against the king himself and, uh, and then, which then by extension, the language here would be a way of saying, and then all who are within the kingdom here would fall. So to, to bring him down is to bring judgment upon the nation. And so the driving image, the one that I find so interesting in in this text, that, that the vision that Amos is giving here uses the language of a plumb line. Now, who here has used a plumb line before? All right. You know what's amazing about a plumb line? In 4,000 years, it's not changed. The plumb line that is being talked about in Amos is the same fundamental tool that's used today. In fact, I got a picture here, just so you can see this. So the one on my right, um, it may be hard to tell, but you can tell it looks older. This, this is probably uh, around the age of the book of Amos. Uh, so the one on the right is a plum, a plum bob that has been made of lead. And the one on my left-hand side is obviously a modern one, okay? So we don't want people to get cancer, so we don't make them of lead anymore, right? Or what, you know, whatever the reason may be. So uh, that's a different material. But you notice it's, it's a little sleeker, it's shinier, probably lasts longer, but it's no different. A cone of weight comes to a point that you tie a string onto. Now, what is the fundamental purpose of a plumb line? What's its design? Okay, to make sure that something is straight, right? When we say something is plumbed, we mean it's straight or it's true. Straight or true to what? 
What's the standard? What's it true to? If it's, if it's going to be straight, okay, straight. If I do this, is my arm straight? Well, sure it is. That's straight. Is, is that what you want to do? No. You think like this, right? True, this. Oh, so does that mean it's true if it's at a, if it has a 90 degree angle to it, right? Nope, because it could be built like this. Still a 90 degree angle. What's it true to? What is the function of a plumb line? The reason why this thing has not changed in 3,000 years is because there's a law at work. Something is plumb in relation to gravity. Gravity, right? That's what does it. Something is straight up and down. Like what you mean by, you don't mean straight, you mean straight up and down, right? You mean perfectly vertical. A plumb line is designed to make sure whatever you put up is in line with the vertical pull of gravity. That's how it works. Guess what has not changed? A lot of things have changed in 3,000 years. Guess what hasn't? Gravity. All right? I mean, I'm not a physicist, but I'm pretty sure I'm right here. I'm pretty sure Hollywood hadn't messed this up. I'm pretty sure Washington hasn't messed this law up. I think it still functions. The law of gravity is... Supreme Court can't decide on this one, right? It still works. So, in other words, if you want something to be plumb, if you're going to build something, and it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter what you're building. If it's going to be secure and strong, even if it doesn't have some big post right in the middle that follows a plumb, that's, that's a plumb line in essence, whatever point is bearing the most weight is still going to adhere to this principle. It's got to. Because what happens is if it doesn't? Guess what also always wins? Gravity. Gravity's always going to win. At some point, if you do not build according to these laws of physics, they're going to win the day. Now, it might take a long time. Got the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? Might take a while, okay? And I don't know if that or when that thing will fall down. They try and keep it up. But clearly, this, it's not plumb, okay? It's not straight up and down because it's because if you're going to make sure that this is going to be tight, secure, the way it should be, it's got to adhere to the laws of gravity. It's got to make sure it's in line with the vertical pole of gravity. Here's why I think this is such a profound image. God on a wall, a wall that was built with a plumb line, and now God holding that plumb line, and now putting that in the midst of Israel. So what is he, what is he saying? He's he's in essence making the point, Israel is no longer true. She's no longer straight. She's no longer plumbed, right? She's no longer in, in alignment. In alignment with what? God's own glory, nature, and that as expressed in His law. You know, what's interesting about the presence of God on this wall, this says everything about it. The issue is not, it's not that they are out of line with the plumb line of the wall, it's they are out of plumb with the one who built it. He's over the wall, right? You notice that, he's over the wall. So, so the wall itself is under him. So the problem is, they are not in line with God himself, 
They're not in line with his righteousness. They're not in line with his law. They're not in line with his holiness. So God is saying, when I put this measure out here as a way to look and see, I'm holding the plumb line. And so how is this expressed? His law, his word, his expectations, the covenant agreement that they had made, when he dangles that out and he puts it right next to Israel, boy, she is, she is way off, right? She is way off. And so th- this is a pretty powerful visual image Amos is preaching this to the powerful people of Israel. And, and he, he's saying, by God's standard, by God's plumb line, by his measurement, you don't measure up. And so the vision is designed to, to show God is going to evaluate his people. He's going to demonstrate they do not match up to his expectations. Now, before you get worried about that kind of language, keep in mind part of God's expectations for his people included doing the right thing when they sinned. You do know God never, never put the obligation upon his people that they had to be perfect all the time. You say, Pastor, that sounds weird. What do you mean? I mean, it seems like he had pretty high expectations. He did. He did, which is why the law, the book of Leviticus, begins with a sin sacrifice. This is why the first thing God told Moses after giving the Ten Commandments, he told him how to build an altar. Because he knows the standard is beyond what they can keep. So, so God had a way of keeping them plumb, right? Not by just pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and just being good enough and trying by the grit of their teeth to really just get in there and be holy. That is a fool's game. You will not do that. In fact, you'll just find out how hard it really is to live without sin. (laughs) That's all that'll accomplish. Instead, God gave them tools to keep them plumb. He, He knew this would happen. He knew this would happen. So to keep them aligned, he, he, he gave them his law. And the law was then designed not only to show them how to live, what his expectations were, but then when this thing started to, to, to move, when they started to move, then, then they, they were able to correct by taking advantage then of God's means of forgiveness. But see, this is something they failed to do. They not only broke the law, they disregarded God's expressions of grace. They, they, they didn't avail themselves of the things God had provided to say, if, if there is sin among you, here's what you, need, here's what you need to do. You know, this is interesting because it really puts the foolishness of people in perspective. What, what has Israel really done here? The reason why God's going to have to lay out his own plumb line is because what the people have functionally done is they've created their own. They've established their own standard against which they then judge themselves. Do you know anybody else who does stuff like that? Yeah, like the rest of humanity all the time, every time, throughout all of human history, including the people in this room, were it not for the grace of Christ. This is, how we, this is what we do. We want to establish our own plumb lines. But that's like me becoming a builder and saying, you know what? I think I want to build according to something other than the laws of gravity. I think I'll build according to the laws of Scott. Let's see how that works. Who wants, who wants me to do some work for you? Anyone? All right, anyone? No. It's foolish. But how many people? This is how they live their lives, right? 
I create my own standard. I establish my own plumb line. The problem is it's never really ever plumb because it's not according to the law. It never matches the vertical pole of what God has established to be true. So th- this is the predicament that everybody is really in. And so God says, so I'm, I'm going to measure them. And it perfectly, I think, describes all of human history. Of course, then we can think about this in the broader biblical context. Because I think then this is helpful and this is something then that encourages us. You know, because we, we've already mentioned, so God's plumb line as it, as it pertained to the people of Amos' day would have been the law and availing themselves of the resources of the law, in particular the sacrificial system. So, so what, what do we have now post-New Testament as people on this side of the cross and the resurrection? Because we're not plumb either, right? No, we're way off. So, so here, here's the problem that we have. Here's why the gospel matters. The problem that we have is that the line is established by God's righteousness, God's own holiness. And when I look at my life compared to it, I'm way off the charts. This is what the law does for us. The law shows me I'm not plumb, right? I'm not righteous. Any attempt on my part to make myself as righteous as God using the resources I have in and of myself only makes my sin problem magnified even greater. So then what does the gospel do? This, and this is the beautiful part of this. So the, in the gospel, God takes what was my attempts to make myself righteous, me creating my own plumb line, right? He takes my foolish attempts and judges Jesus for it. And then what does he give me in exchange? Righteousness of Christ, Right? So now what do I have in me? I have, I have in me. Now that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, I'm, I am plumb, all right? I am positionally. I, I, I am in cooperation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has given me the righteousness of Christ. So I do stand true. And then the rest of the New Testament ethic, the, 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 the morality of it, the commands, the, the commands to be holy and righteous and to be loving and kind and good and, and, and all of these expectations that are repeated over and over in the New Testament are, should be a manifestation then of the position that has been given to me. What does it mean to be plumb, to be right with God? And this is what should then be manifested in my life. It's because I, I then had the question, well... What would happen if God dropped his plumb line in my life? I thought about this as I was thinking about this message. What, what would happen if God dropped his plumb line in my life? How would I measure up? And, and I had a couple of reactions to that. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I would think, wow, I got some work to do. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I look at God's righteousness and his holiness, that, that's hard. That's a hard standard. And that's not necessarily a bad reaction to have. How do I look in relation to God's plumb line? But then I, then I realize, what would, what would I do if God dropped his plumb line in the midst of me? Well, he did. Because he gave me Jesus. He did. Because I can't match his. I can't make myself upright. I can't make myself true. And so really that measurement's already been given. That evaluation has already been done. And so Amos does drive us to the gospel, as hard as some of his message is. This is certainly one of those where he drives us then to what is God's ultimate setting. But we would do well to remember, though, as far as the people of uh, Amos' day are concerned, this is not a positive message. 
because they're being measured and found wanting. They're not true. He's put up a plumb line against their worship. It's not true. He's put a plumb line against their leadership. It's not true. He's put a plumb line up against them theologically, politically, culturally, economically. None of it's matching. And so God says, so I'm I'm going to take your kingdom by the sword, an allusion to the Assyrians uh, that will be coming in and will be the instrument of God's judgment. Now, next week, we'll we'll move on to the end of chapter 7. It is the only story in the book of Amos. It's an actual story. It's a narrative, still written poetically, but it's a narrative, and it's a really interesting one. And uh, I think we'll have some interesting applications to how we see ourselves in relation to the culture around us. And, uh, and so I, I think Amos's message will be encouraging to us next week. All right, so we'll get together again next Wednesday and look at the third feature this vision gives to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for the gathering of your people. Grateful to have uh, been able to come together and to pray. And we, we thank you for the encouragement and strength we draw from praying for one another and the blessing we can be to others as they know that we have prayed for them. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for the righteousness given to us in Christ. And Father, I pray that our lives then would reflect that, that we indeed are are plumb, we are true, we are in right relationship in Christ. And may, may our lives truly reflect what is that good work of grace bestowed upon us. I thank you for these who've come out the blessing that it is to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray they would know then your blessing upon them, your hand upon them, as you lead them in the days to come, lead them in wisdom, lead them in faith, that they might bring glory to your name. And gather your people back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.